I wanted to jump in with a story. Uh, I'm a school teacher, and I was collecting these tests, actually assignments back from my students. I'm marking my assignments. And uh, one student is telling me in his work, he's telling me about a can, C-A-N, that's traveling at 110,539 kilometers per hour. This is a true story. This really happened. The names are made up, but the problems are real. And so I'm reading Rob's paper, and he goes on at length about can. Do you mean car? Well, that's too fast for a car anyway. I'm going through his paper, I'm like, you dropped a decimal here, you dropped a couple of negatives, somehow you ended up with the right answer. Hmm, suspicious. And then I'm marking John's paper. He's talking about a car that's going 110,000, I'm sorry, he's talking about a car that's going 110 kilometers per hour, 0.539. There's a dot in there. And that decimal makes a lot of difference, doesn't it? It's kind of the difference between real and fake. And I'm starting to put the test together, you know, X equals, and you start to go down your formula, and you run out of space, you start another column. And now with John and Rob next to each other, I realize they both have exact columns. Even though Rob didn't run out of space, he still had the same columns. He called it a can throughout that went 110,539 kilometers per hour. I know Rob copied John. So I do what any good school teacher did. I took out my red pen of authority, and I start with John. Show your work, John. Significant figures, prove it. Uh, I, was, I came out pretty hard on John. And then with Rob, I gave him 100%. I mean, it was perfect. His work was perfect. All the answers were right, wouldn't you? I gave him 100%. Excellent work. Way better than your quiz. Good job. Obviously, you worked hard on this. And then I returned their, tests, their assignments back to them. I made sure that Rob's paper was on the top. Hey, Rob, good work. Yes. He does one of those on his way back to his seat. Okay, he goes back, sits in the back. Him and John are friends. I know him and John. John is a very high-performing student in my class. Rob, I don't know. He's the 11th hour student. Anyway, it's a euphemism. But anyways, you'll figure it out. Uh, I give John back his paper. <sighs> He's looking at it. I can't see his face, but oh boy, I, uh, I gave him a 30%. He barely made it back to his seat. Now he's, there's a scuffle at the back of the class. He's trying to reach into Rob's bag. He wants Rob's paper so he can bring it up and get validated. He wants to bring Rob and John's paper and show me, how did I get the, I got the same thing as Rob, and Rob is fighting to hold his bag closed. Like, is there a problem at the back? No, 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 no problem. There's no problem. I made an ASAF moment. I made an ASAF moment. I rewarded a cheater. And Rob knew it. He's the cheater. And John knew it. And John is like, why'd you give me 30%? <laughs> I forgot to tell the first service, I had a follow-up conversation with these students. That's not how we closed the books on that. The point was, I taught science that day, but I also taught a side product, a side course on integrity. And we had a little conversation about integrity. Uh, today we're going to be looking at Psalm 73. Asaph is asking an age-old question. He writes a thousand years before Jesus about a dilemma. A dilemma between what he knows in his mind that God is good and what he sees with his eyes, that God seems capricious. He's so loose at rewarding evil people. 
He seems indifferent about where he divvies up his favor and where he gives prosperity. This was a problem for Asaph. Is it a problem for you? Same thing today. We'd be upset. Asaph has every reason to be upset. Asaph was a music composer, a poet, uh, a, a music conductor in, uh, uh, under King David, so that's in the tabernacle, and then later in the temple. And so he was kind of the heyday of Israel. He's credited for writing Psalm 50, Psalm 73, where we're reading in today, through Psalm 83. And so 12 Psalms uh, under Asaph. Asaph was a, a thinker. And I appreciate that he's writing things that we'll be looking at today that are so relevant. You know, you hear people that say, the Bible is not relevant. How can it be relevant? It was written thousands of years ago. I'd like to say, there are wicked people prospering today. Psalm 73 is very relevant. Let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for your word that speaks to us today, though it was written uh, thousands of years ago. It's your heart expressed to us. And Lord, I appreciate that your word is unflinching. By that I mean you can ask hard questions. And here it is in your word, a hard question. This godly man, Asaph, is wrestling with his perspective of you. And it almost caused him to slip. It was almost his undoing. Lord, I pray that we listening here this morning, whether we have questions or not, Lord, that we would know that you're a God who does hard questions. You satisfy every question, even if, like an Asaph, like for Job, like for so many questioners, they weren't answered in their lifetime. Thank you, Lord, that you are satisfying for the hardest questioner. I pray, Lord, that you'd open our hearts and minds to hear Asaph's heart in your word. And Lord, may your spirit open our minds to hear what you have to say to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have a few dilemmas that we're going to jump into. And I'd like to read, I'm going to read this whole psalm to you again. But I want to read through it kind of a few verses at a time. So join me now, uh, reading from Psalm 73 and verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel. You could have stopped right there. God is good. Amen. Let's close in prayer. You started with the true word, Asaph. Nailed it. All the points are there. And if you're going to fall asleep, you were up late last night. I've made, that's my whole point. There it is. You got it. That's, that's the answer to the question that he's about to ask. Why would you ask a question that you just answered? Well, because Asaph has the maturity to see the tension of what he knows and what he sees and they're irreconcilably different. And so he's going to go on. Ready? Here's a roller coaster. It's going to feel like a roller coaster. Truly God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. Because God is good immutably and unchangeably. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. How can you blame Asaph? Do you know what's at stake here? God seems to be showing favor to evil people. We're going to talk in a second about what Asaph's version of an evil person is. It's pretty ugly. God seems to be favoring them. He seems either complicit or indifferent. But in Asaph's world, he's saying, I'm following God. And there seems like no reason why. It's a good question, Asaph. There's a lot involved here. 
He's almost asking a question about God's character. God, are you even good? Because you seem to be giving your goodness to people who don't deserve it. Such questions cause question about the moral order of the universe. That's a pretty earth-shaking question. And so we understand where Asaph is coming from. Here's a whole list I'm going to abbreviate for you as we read through the list of the bio of the wicked people. Verse 4, they have no pains in death or pangs on till death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. I'll stop there. You can't really fault anybody for verse 4 and 5, okay? For not dying a horrible death like they do in the movies, okay? You can't fault somebody for not getting stricken and sick through their life. You can't fault someone whose body is fat and sleek. You can't fault someone who doesn't have pains until death. These are amoral things, you know, but boy, they get under Asaph's skin. He's pretty mad. In fact, the word fat there in verse 4, fat and sleek, that word just means plenty. Their bodies are well-fed. It's different than the word fat that we're going to be talking about in a second. So here is Asaph, just, just mad that these people are doing so well. Life is so easy for them. And then verse 6, is there's a little turning point. He says, therefore, therefore, almost like here's their response to how God is giving them smoothness. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence cover them as, as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. That's a different word. Fatness, this is the fat portion of a steak or a piece of meat that you'll cut off and hopefully not eat. That white part, that's the fatness in Leviticus, part of sacrifices. That's the fat. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression and they set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them. His people, whose people are we talking about? Verse 10. His people, are these rulers? Are these governors? Is this an oppressive authority? Whatever it is, they're influencers. We have influencers today, don't we? Who do exactly, uh, this is the same bio as those influencers. Those people who strut through the earth like they own the place. Like they could say no wrong. Like they are gods, self-declared gods. Therefore, their people, his people, turn back to them and find no fault in them. Yeah, what he's saying is true. It's good. It's good. I believe. I agree with everything he's saying. Verse 11. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. It's kind of an ugly picture, actually. I think of a FIFA game when it finishes. This is a reft game, the championships of soccer for you people who don't follow this stuff, okay? At the end of the game, there's like, ooh, there's riots, there's cars get rolled over, like things get set on fire, and that's a well-reft game, right? Like no one cheated. No one cheated in the game. I mean, show me the cheat. The whole thing's recorded. Where did anyone cheat? No, the cars still get rolled over and people are angry. Okay, whatever. Imagine if a ref was complicit, encouraged a cheating team, and then they won you would empty the stadium. Never would a human kick a soccer ball again. Okay? Like, it would just be absolute tumult. There would be crimes committed, I'm telling you, because of the game of soccer. Do you understand? This is soccer. Look, let's, let's bring it home, okay? Uh, I'm a father. I watched Cinderella this week. I'm not ashamed of that. With my girls. 
In Cinderella, we have this uh, sweet, kind, gentle, kind of oppressed girl who gets to go to the ball, and she's abused and uh, beat up upon, oppressed by this wicked two stepsisters and her stepmother. Do you remember? Okay. And we kind of celebrate, it seems fitting that the fairy godmother appears to her in the garden, makes a beautiful dress, enchanted moment, makes this, uh, you know, ch- ch- uh, carriage and the horse and all of that and the glass slipper and the two live happily ever after. Wonderful. We love that. It's a timeless classic. But imagine I was going to repitch Cinderella. I got a great way to do this. There's a little confusion in the garden, let's say. And the fairy godmother decides he's go- she's going to make a beautiful enchanting dress from the wicked stepsisters. This is like a Hans Christian Andersen kind of spin, isn't it? It's dark and bad and no one likes it. Like, who would, sell, who would like that? And somehow the wicked stepsisters married this Prince Charming and it's just like so unfitting. What, you wrecked a good story. No one would be interested in that. That's what Asaph's talking about. Why do the evil win? Why do they prosper? They don't deserve it. In fact, he's going on to say some things. I'm not even sure if he means them literally. Not totally sure, but reading in verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness. I don't know if that's literal. Like, are their eyes bulging out because they're so fat? Or if this is figurative, I'm wondering if Asaph is so angry in this moment that he's got a bit of a jaded view. He's kind of speaking in hyperbole. Hyperbole is when you say something that can't actually even really be rationally taken literally. You're just blowing it out of proportion, kicked it out of the world. It was just so ridiculous. Uh, Never, ever possible. And here he is speaking emotionally about the wicked. You can't blame him because the wicked seem to be making a clear assault on God's character. And Asaph is a godly man. He loves God. And he sees the wicked making a clear assault on the goodness of God. And so here is the dilemma. We've got this issue. I'll go back a slide. I missed something. He's not the first one to ask dilemma-like questions. Job asked some dilemma-like questions, didn't he? Didn't Job ask, hey, why do bad things happen to good people? Okay, the first chapter of Job. Job was blameless and upright in all his ways. And then the next 42 chapters is mostly the undoing of Job. Losing his children, losing his stuff, losing his health, and only left with his wife. Curse God and die, wife. Okay, can you imagine? And so here's Job's dilemma. Why do bad things happen to good people? His premise is wrong. His premise is the outcome of goodness must be prosperity. Job could come up this morning and preach against the prosperity gospel. Job did everything right, blameless, according to God, not according to himself in the mirror. Job is declared blameless according to God, and yet look at his life. This isn't always what results, and this created a dilemma between what Job experienced in his life and what Job knew in his mind. And now Asaph is doing the same thing. He's saying the opposite question, kind of the opposite of the same coin. Not why do bad things happen to good people. He's asking, why do good things happen to bad people? It's just as bad, it's just as ugly, and it's just as unfitting. You don't have to be a Christian to say this. It's a dilemma today too. Just like it was 3,000 years ago. It's still 
a dilemma, and the premise is wrong. Week, month, year, but at some point, sin does lead to misery. Do not be deceived. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he reap, is what God says. And you know what? Asaph wasn't the last person to ask these same dilemma questions. Habakkuk, how long, Lord, must I call for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? I can hear Habakkuk's heart. Yeah, you're right, Habakkuk. You're right, Jeremiah, contemporary of Habakkuk, asked the same kind of question. Why does the wicked prosper, the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease. It just doesn't make sense. So there is some hyperbole. There's definitely some emotion, and Asaph is not done. Here in verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent for all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. It sounds quite a bit like the prodigal son's older brother. Do you remember that story from Luke 15? Jesus is telling a parable in Luke 15. And as he's telling a parable, he's trying to give a picture of the bounty and grace of his Father in heaven. And he's speaking to religious people who are just legalistic. And the picture that he's trying to paint is a picture of legalism and the ugliness of what it does in tainting our impressions. It puts bitterness in our hearts against the Father or against God. And so, very quickly... The younger son comes to the father and says, hey, dad, I never cared about you. I don't want to wait till you're dead. You give me half of what you have because that's my inheritance, and I'm going to just go and live my life YOLO. He goes, he lives his life. He squanders all of his, his half of the inheritance and comes back, and his father is just enraptured. He puts a new ring on his finger. He dresses him in dignifying, clean, fresh garments again, slaughters the fattened calf, and has a giant party to celebrate that his family is back together. His son was dead and is now alive. Beautiful. It's a beautiful picture. This is where it really gets ugly. He's like, where's your older brother? Where's your older brother? He's out working in the field. All right. Uh, can I have the next slide? So Luke 15, and we'll start in at verse 28. Here we are. Uh, but he was angry, so the older brother refused to even go in. They're all partying, it, killing the fattened calf, having this celebration that this son of yours who's dead and is now alive has come back. Uh, but the older brother was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, son, you're making a scene. Like, what's wrong? What's happening? Your brother is back. Uh, come celebrate with us. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your commands, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. <sighs> Family problems. So here's the older brother saying, I'd love to have celebrated with a goat. And here you kill a fattened calf. Goat, fat, and calf. I love the father's answer. Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Forget the goat, forget the fat and calf. You got the whole thing. You're always with me. What a gracious answer to a 
bitter son. I wonder how many decades, maybe, how many years, this son slaved out in the field, not carrying an iota for his father, certainly not his brother. You would almost think that the older brother's heart was further than the prodigal son's heart when the prodigal had left. At least the prodigal was back. The older son is long gone. Years of bitterness had worked its poison deep into the, prodigal, into the prodigal's older brother's heart. And so now with that in mind, read again. The spirit of this older brother who didn't understand the father is speaking in verse 13 and 14. All in vain, Asaph says. Godly Asaph. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If he's not speaking out of emotion, I don't know what. He's, how can you say this? Asaph, don't you know the Father? If this is your experience of God, you don't know God. We can all slide into legalism and feel like God's hand is heavy upon us, ask, commanding us to do things. That is not the Father that we're told about in Luke 15, certainly. And so here, I don't know who this stricken every morning and rebuked, like, Ace, what are you talking, is this your conscience, Asaph? Like, who's rebuking you? Who's talking to you and making you feel like you're being oppressed? Like this is an oppressive belief. Actually, the dilemma is not finished. Verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus. If I said, I'm just going to speak openly about how I'm feeling about things. Here's, here is Asaph, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So not only does he have this dilemma, he feels like God is haphazard about divvying out favor to, he's blessing wicked people. But also he feels like if he starts talking openly about how he feels about things, that he's going to betray other, maybe more simple people who have never asked this dilemma, never seen this problem. He feels he's going to cause others to slip. After all, his own feet had nearly slipped. Albert Barnes has a wonderful quote on this. Albert Barnes, the uh, 1850 or so Presbyterian minister, he says, to instill such objections in other believers could be disastrous for them, causing their feet to actually slip. I don't want to implant in their minds grounds for distress or shake up their confidence in God. It would not be kind to suggest thoughts to others that would harass their minds like his had been. He knew how they might be regarded by others, how others might be led to feel as if no confidence was to be placed in God, how this might suggest thoughts to them which would not otherwise occur to them and which would only tend to fill their minds with distress, how such thoughts might unsettle the foundations of their faith, the peace, their hope, and their joy. So Asaph has another problem. He can't talk about this. There's nobody he can trust to just vent out this struggle. Verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, reconciling the goodness of God with the favor he seems to show on evil oppressors until I went into the house of God. Then I discerned their end. Have you ever heard of the overview effect? The overview effect. Uh, it's, it's said when an astronaut goes to space, they have such a profound, transformative view, seeing the pale blue dot of all their memories, of everything they've ever owned, of every conversation they've ever had, of everybody they've ever met, 
their children, their wives, their everything is in a dot this size. It's called the overview effect. Here's the definition. It describes the profound cognitive shift that many astronomers experience when they see Earth from space. It leads them to a heightened sense of interconnectedness, a deeper understanding of the planet's fragility and the pettiness of human problems. Nicole Stott, who was a, uh, a flight engineer on, on the International Space, Center, Space Station, she says, you leave Earth in a spaceship and it's really noisy. Then you arrive in space. It's so silent. You hear your own heart beating and your breath in your helmet. That's different than the hustle and bustle of life. If this is what the overview effect is of going to space, imagine the over overview effect of being in the presence of God. That's what Asaph is describing. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. I can imagine Asaph is walking toward the sanctuary some morning. Children are playing in the yard. You know, tag, you're it. There's some kind of exchange at the marketplace. Uh, there is some animals that are crossing. There's people maybe yelling at each other. There's the noise of life. And he gets into the sanctuary. The first thing he sees. What's the first thing he sees? The blood in the tabernacle or temple that reminds him that everything in this direction is pure and holy and just, and everything in this direction is broken and sinful and wrong. He's reminded of the justice of a holy God that God actually takes in very seriously. There's an innocent animal being slaughtered for the sins of someone else. God doesn't uh, sidestep around sin. Then he hears worship and prayer. And by worship and prayer, he's reminded that God is actually center to all things. That's different than the daily news. That's different than the audiobook you heard maybe coming into church or through this week on the way to work. That's different than the newest invention or the news, the inflation or what's going on in politics or a new fire that's happening. That's different. Things happen in the news that might affect you today or maybe next month or the rest of your life, but nothing like what you get in the sanctuary when God's Word is opened. And so, Asaph is exposed to this view of eternity, this beautiful picture that puts everything in proper perspective. Finally, Asaph has a framework upon which all the other truths can hang and make sense of the rest of the realities. Guess what's still happening outside? The wicked are still prospering. They're still strutting their stuff. They're still angry at God and threatening violence and oppression. They're still sleek and fat and all those other things that he's saying. That has not changed. So in one sense, nothing's changed. But in another sense, everything has changed. Because for Asaph, he says, my feet almost slipped. I almost traded everything I knew. It was on the table. I was ready to let it go. I had lost perspective. You can't fault the guy for being emotional. I understand. Have you been there before? Have you ever asked some of Asaph's questions? Maybe you've never asked the same dilemma as Asaph has. Wow, he comes in here emotional. And he gets a perspective shift, this overview effect, just like rocked him. I needed that, God. 
I needed that reminder. So many of us don't have a sanctuary. I don't mean a building. <laughs> this is funny. Here on a Sunday morning, you're in the sanctuary. Guys, I'm in the sanctuary. I, I made it. I'm at church. So why are we talking about coming to the sanctuary? I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about a time or a place where you regularly meet with God. Because in your hustle and bustle life, think of your last week. When did you sanctuary through the week? Our emotions are under constant assault. You watch a movie, it's intended to tug on your heartstrings. It's intended to tip you one way or the other. The shady guy, uh, but he was a victim of circumstances in his past, but really he's a good guy, did some bad things. So now what? Are you rooting for him? Uh, the music you're listening to, which is not out of the Bible, talks about crazy things and sings about crazy things. It elicits an emotional response. The circumstances that come to you unprovoked, sometimes out of nowhere, you get a health diagnosis or you hear about somebody who is struggling with something, X, Y, Z circumstance, that's going to elicit an emotional response. Asaph just had a big emotional moment and he comes in the sanctuary. What happens in the sanctuary? He gets truth. Perspective-orienting truth. They say what happens in Las Vegas stays in Las Vegas. You know why? Because the way the world thinks is so full of shame and sin and evil that you don't even want to talk about it. It's embar- it should be embarrassing. What happens in the sanctuary leaves the sanctuary. It's intended to come out of the sanctuary because you come out a different person. Where is your sanctuary? Susanna Wesley, mother of 19, one of them being John Wesley, let's slow that down, had 19. Susanna Wesley had 19 children. Okay. How does such a woman get sanctuary? (laughs) I mean, really. Here's actually how she did it. She would sit down. She would take her apron and pull it over her head. She's praying. And the kids knew, leave mom alone. Just leave mom alone. She's having time with Jesus. She's in the sanctuary. It's not a building. She knew she needed a sanctuary. Where's your sanctuary? Do you head out to work in the morning, a little bit of breakfast on your phone, a couple conversations, an audio book, some news, some music, the hustle and bustle of work, same thing on the way home, Netflix or some show you're dedicated to in the evening, back to sleep, repeat. Where's your sanctuary? Where do you decompress the emotional abuse that we feel, that barrages us, the noises and the voices. What are those voices we hear? The hearts overflowing with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. Their mouths are against the heavens. Their tongues stretch through the earth. That's what we hear. For most people, this is an unbroken playlist. Where is your sanctuary? Without a life after this one, it would be impossible to reconcile the problem of the prosperity of the wicked with the justice of God. And so, Asaph needed that adjustment, that emotional diffusion. He was able to come in the sanctuary, leave his emotions there. God can handle that. God knows that already. He designed you with emotions. That's okay. But square them with the truth. Square them with what you know is right. And now, Asaph is ready, swinging hard. He's coming out of the sanctuary. Listen to what he says. Verse 18, 
Truly, you set them in slippery places. Wow, where have we heard about slippery places? You set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Who are you? Asaph, did you just go in there? Did you, are you the same guy who went in there moments ago? I was reminded I had an eternal perspective. I had time with God. About half of the United States, the states, uh, still have capital punishment. Several of them, like Oklahoma, Texas, Florida, they have this kind of humanizing ritual for some of the prisoners that are on death row. Their last meal, they can ask for a special meal. And you see these moments in their la- they're enjoying their last meal, and they'll say things like, oh yeah, it just reminds me of, home- reminds me of my childhood. Uh, my mom used to cook for me like this. Oh, this was- I ate like this when I was free, back in my innocence. You know, they'll say stuff like, they're just like scrumptiously just enjoying every last morsel. And Asaph now, he's like, minutes ago, I was watching your pleasure. I was watching you enjoy yourself to such a degree that I envied you. I wanted to switch seats with you. That's absurd. That's absurd. That's so crazy that I was so rabid about this prosperity that I lost sight of everything else. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, You could tell it left an impression on his soul. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Consider that, like a beast. A beast has no sense of eternity or justice or morality or God or consequences. A beast is feeding its instincts, its pleasure of sin for a season, for the moment. It's a creature of instinct, as Jude says, caught only to be caught and destroyed in a trap. Like, consider what he's saying. I, Lord, I traded you. I was a brute beast before you, and I lost sight of everything that was important. But I appreciate this word, nevertheless. Verse 23, nevertheless. It feels like a legal word, doesn't it? Notwithstanding. Even though I was a brute beast before you. Even though that is true of, was true of me. The fact is, I'm continually with you. You hold my hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you'll receive me to glory. Is that so beautifully uh, reconciling? You know, some people say Christianity is just a bunch of people that are kind of living for the afterlife. You know, you're just like, you can't party now, you can't have fun now because you're going to, you know, with Jesus and whatever after. Okay, all right. Anyway, look at the tense here. Look at the tense. I am, M is current, past, uh, present tense. I am con- continually with you. You hold my hand now. You guide me with your counsel now. I need your counsel now. I need you to ground me, God, because I'm getting carried away with my emotions and my crazy perspective, and I'm tempted to sin. I'm envying the wicked. I need you to guide me with your counsel now. And afterward, Afterward, you'll receive me to glory. Read this with me. Verse 25 and 26. I want to make sure you're still awake. Verse 25 and 26 together. Whom have I 
in heaven but you, out loud, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is our rewarder. He is the reward and the rewarder. Hebrews 11.6 has a beautiful uh, uh, verse for us. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Can we have that slide up? Uh, Hebrews 11.6, because those who come to Him must believe that He exists and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Hey, let me tell you something about yourself. Every time you and I sin, and we do, what, the speaker sins? Yeah. Every time you sin and I sin, we forget God the rewarder. We forget that God's reward is better than the pleasure of sin for a season in this moment. We part God, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know God is, you know, I know God is good and God is right and you're right and I shouldn't do this or whatever, but sin is for a season and the reward is here and now. We forget about God, the rewarder. Here we're reading about whom have I in heaven but you, the reward and the rewarder. And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I appreciate that it says my flesh and my heart may fail. It will fail. Who in this room has a heart that won't fail or flesh that won't fail? Every second, our, our heart and our flesh are failing more and more. But God is the strength of my heart. You don't have to worry about it. God powers your heart and those desires and my portion now and forever. There's a new word here that's introduced to the conversation. And you know what's interesting? That's really what it's all about. Here we're looking for prosperity, but Asaph is like, actually what I really wanted was the portion. Jesus is the portion. Forget prospering here in this life, the here and now. It's here and fleeting and gone in a moment. Asaph says, no, I get you now. You're my portion now and forever. It's so beautiful. Uh, verse 27, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. And here's four things now in the last verse. Four things I'll bring to you. First, God, first thing, God is good to Israel, right? Okay, why? Because God is good to those who are pure in heart. Step one. Step two, verse 28. As for me, it is good to be near God. God is good. It's good for me to be near God, verse 28. I love the bookends. Okay, we're bookending this. God is good. It's good for me to be near God. I've made the Lord my refuge instead of slipping like I was a second ago, nearly slipping. My feet had almost slipped. And now he's like, my feet are planted in God, my refuge. I'm solid, immovable. He's my foundation. And the fourth thing, that I may tell of your works. Hey, Asaph, this is different than the shame you had minutes ago, right? Verse, uh, verse uh, 13 and 14, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and on and on you went, like it's so hard and whatever. And now he's like, I will tell the world. I will tell the world of your incredible works. I want to ask you, what frames your perspective? I hear people saying something really weird. They say like, hey, that's not my truth. My truth is more like this. That's your truth. What are you talking about? One plus one is two. Whose truth is that? Who owns that truth? It's such a confusing way to talk. I've heard Christians say that. You know, we, you know we live in a post-truth world when people say that about the truth. Okay? You might have a perspective. It might be a right perspective or a wrong perspective, but we need to pull that perspective into alignment with the truth. 
And do you know what else? There's not any like pre-ASAF people and post-ASAF people. Like, yeah, I used to be ASAP and I struggle with these things, but now I know and now I'm good. Actually, take heed lest he fall. <laughs> You're next. I remember when, you, you know our family story, Rachel had uh, spinal cord surgery December 6th. I was a wreck. I was a wreck. It was a risky surgery. Things could have been very different. And I was asking myself some real embarrassing questions. I was really struggling with this. And I was asking questions about God because God had the answers, everything I needed. I needed to be re-centered. I was having an ASAF moment. My own dilemma. What's your dilemma? Maybe you're not asking why the wicked are prospering. Maybe that's not your dilemma, but what is your dilemma that you struggle with? And what is the sanctuary that you go to? <laughs> I can't finish this passage uh, without showing this. Uh, the chiasm. What is a chiasm? It's a giant poem we just read. You know, when we read poems, it's a big rhyming structure, you know, A, B, A, B, or whatever. But Hebrew poetry is quite different. Uh, this is one giant chiasm. I don't, I don't want you to miss it. It's a literary device in which a sequence of ideas is presented and then repeated in reverse order. The result is a mirror effect as the ideas are reflected back in a passage. So here is the answer key to Psalm 73. There's the chiasm. All right? Beautiful. Okay, that's it. So there we go. Uh, I'll, I'll walk you through it. First, there's a dilemma. All right? Verse 1 to 3, the dilemma. Here's the, I've got the tension between what I see and what I know. And then he's like, I see the wicked being blessed. I see, and now it makes me miserable. I go into the sanctuary and I get the eternal perspective that I need, that God is still on his throne. Job got the eternal perspective by talking to God. Uh, Solomon couldn't get the eternal pers couldn't answer his question without an eternal perspective. And Asaph, everything is right. Then he gets the truth about the wicked. Then he sees the blessing of the believer. And then there's the resolution. It's a beautiful, it's bookended. It's literally like walking up a mountain and walking down a mountain on the other side. You can see the symmetry in the poem. I almost think it's kind of a better kind of poem. Because you feel like, in my, in my Bible, it looks like this. There's the left side. And the left side is all the emotion. Verse 17 is down here. It's so beautifully laid out. just happens to be. There's all the emotion and hyperbole and the struggle of Asaph. And on the other side is all the resolve. And the answer is on the right. I actually like even the pronouns. Watch the pronouns in the beginning. Uh, 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 the beginning, he's talking, the pronoun is I. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. My steps nearly slipped. I was envious of the wicked. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then he shifts. He's they... They are not in trouble. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Their mouths uh, strut through the earth. And then the misery of the believer. Here's how he responded. Look how he responds. All in vain, I've kept my heart pure. If I, I will speak thus. You can see the pronoun shifting. The pronouns is the focus. It's the focus that's moving through this chiastic poem. It's beautiful. And then the truth about the wicked. You have set them in slippery places. And then he says, when, I was, when my soul was embittered, I was brutish. I was pricked in the heart. I was like a beast toward you. And then finally, the resolution is not you, is not I. It's you and I, you being God. And he says, whom have I in heaven but you? I appreciate that God is not afraid of hard questions. That God is big enough and knows every word before word is on our tongue. He knows it full well. God invites us to have these hard questions with Him. When we pray, 
We're praying truths over somebody that they're either forgetting or would just benefit from being reminded of. We're praying God's truths back to him. Lord, we know this. We see this. My brother is sick or unemployed or whatever the situation. We know this. We see this. We know this. Let me help you with that tension by bringing you the truth and bringing you the reminder of what I know. Don't we do that when we worship? Didn't we just sing, this we know? That's exactly what Asaph got going into the sanctuary. Just truths. Truth, 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 truth. God's word is truth, and we need to be reminded of God's truth, lest we be oppressed and we lose our way. Brothers and sisters, there are people in this room right now whose feet are ready to slip. For Asaph, his feet almost slipped. He's a godly guy. There are people in this room right now whose feet are, are almost about to slip. Brother, sister, Let's pray for each other. Let's care for each other. If you're not in a small group, you're doing solo Christian. There's no such thing. Okay? Um, it's, we're coming into the fall season. Let's get into a small group. Let's care for each other. Let's have people pray for each other. We take prayer requests on the church app. Go to the church app and put in a prayer request or have somebody call you. would love to speak to you. Uh, and brother and sister, having a sanctuary is so important because how else are we going to stand against the onslaught Asaph couldn't do it without coming into the sanctuary of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for the forthrightness of your word. You are not afraid of hard questions. You don't mince words, and your word is not obsolete. It's absolutely relevant to today and tomorrow's news and 3,000 years ago to Asaph. Lord, thank you for inviting us into a sanctuary where you can reset our perspective. You can remind us that you're on your throne and you've seen all this and you're above all things and you're always with us. Lord, thank you for the very many precious promises. That's why we sing. We sing to worship you and glorify you. We sing to remind ourselves of the facts that we know. And we say amen, Father, because we stand with you. Lord, we pray if there's anybody in this room whose feet are about to slip, Lord, may they have the courage like Asaph had courage. He was worried that his own question would cause others to slip. Lord, you're not afraid. I pray that those, that, that friend, that brother or sister would have the courage to come forward and ask that question or work through it and get to the bottom of it with you. Lord, may we be honest people because you are ready to do business with us and to talk with us. Lord, may we be intentional with those sanctuary moments and meet you there. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.